Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. This is it, Election Day, November 3rd, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Hasn't voted yet, but is going to vote after. It's my intention. Ha- having voted early, Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Not yet voted, Abe Greenwald, Executive Editor. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And joining us today, I believe, having voted early in Asheville, North Carolina, one of my oldest friends, political expert consultant, White House aide, and uh, consultant and advisor on many presidential campaigns and conventions and the like, uh, Daniel Cass. Hi, Dan. How are you? I am great, John. I am, as a regular listener, I'm honored to be here and... uh, Look forward to discussing all this with you. Okay, so basically we figured that since there's literally nothing to say, everything is the die is cast. I, I by the way, voted early. Uh, so since I was doing a whole who's voted already. Um, since the die is cast, there's nothing to be said. There's no more to be said. We'll see what happens tonight and, and, and maybe beyond tonight. So we thought we might instead take some uh, take a jaunt down various memory lanes of election days past and and elections that went the ways that we might have wanted and elections that didn't go the way that we might have wanted. If you have read, um, and most of you, the overwhelming majority of you have not read my first book, Hell of a Ride, uh, Daniel Cass, our guest, is a, is a character in Hell of a Ride. He worked in the White House and uh, one of the quaintest sections of the book now, having it having been published in 1993, features uh, Dan and commentary uh, board member, Commentary Inc. board member uh, Jay Lefkowitz, both uh, senior White House aides at the Houston Convention in 1992, uh, talking to each other on these amazing giant shoe-like things called cell phones at the Astrodome. And and there's actually an anecdote where where uh, Jay is looking for Dan and he calls Dan and he's just like 30 feet away and it's like ah ha ha look at this strange new world we're living in and of course I like literally text my wife from the living room into our bedroom now in our apartment if I if I need her rather than you know like <laughs> shouting to her so um, so Dale that was the first election. I think of our of our lifetimes, uh, certainly yours and my lifetime. These pipsqueaks over here being younger than we are, um, where uh, delusion and hope and all of that ha- like came smashing into the simple reality of election night and what election night was going to tell. So, do you remember in the say two or three days before the 1992 election? actually having any hope that George H.W. Bush was going to prevail? Well, first of all, John, I should say, um, I'm somewhat reluctant to start going down this road because uh, when I was growing up, I used to find it so obnoxious to hear all these political consultants talk about how great the Kennedy campaign was. (laughs) And I realize now, you know, I have become one of these people talking about campaigns that no one else remembers. You know, we mock the things we are to be, I think, is uh, Mel Brooks's line. Nope, no, no, but excuse me, because you have an unparalleled record of having worked uh, on many 
failed campaigns. Yeah, always, always nothing losing to do with you. So those are always those are always oddly more interesting than the successful campaigns. Well, I will say this: not only are they interesting, they were actually fun. I mean, there was a kind of sense of there was a black comedy sense of the final months of the Bush White House where I work. And uh, this is at George H.W. Bush. Uh, Clinton had overtaken us. And it was the first time where you saw the media was completely with Clinton. Celebrities were completely with Clinton. You just felt it. There was nothing that the White House and President Bush could do to make things turn around. And there was all this sort of dark humor and do you have your resume and where are you applying for jobs in the final weeks? But, you know, you ha- campaigns are totally about hope, even false hope. And um, I remember um, uh, being in the West Wing uh, and uh, the, the White House mess, in fact, the famous White House mess, which is just like a small wood paneled room cafeteria restaurant in the West Wing that everybody loves to mention. And two or three or four days before, somebody ran in, so it's the end of October, and the third quarter growth number was 2.7. If you recall, the country was in uh, recession. And somebody said, 2.7, 2.7, the economy is growing. And so any sliver of hope would do. Um, and um, I think that's what makes campaigns thrive on, thrive and go forward. You look for any glimmer. And that point, 2.7 seemed like a pretty good glimmer. <laughs> and we just had like last week, uh, seven, seven uh, point growth. I mean, annualized seven point, you know, 33 percent for the quarter. Uh, and of course, that news, which is pretty astonishing right i mean there's never been a growth number like that in a single quarter in american history just like eh, whatever doesn't matter i mean which is sort of the story of the, this this campaign in general um yeah which of know, course is 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 the core noah you were saying uh that uh, uh donald trump went on fox and friends this morning and echoed something that he'd been saying in the campaigns and the in the in the rally speeches over the last couple of days also yeah, I mean, I didn't watch the segment. I was just re- watching reviews of people who did watch it. But from what I gathered, the president sounded rather resigned. Um, he was given an opportunity by one of the hosts to tee off on Barack Obama and the Obama administration. And his response was sort of a self-pitying, like, this has been hard and people have been very mean to me sort of thing. So he, he didn't take the bait. And then he was asked, I think, briefly about the Hunter Biden story and the Hunter Biden laptop story, which is itself very difficult to relate. But the president does a relatively poor job of it. Um, he references the story, as I say, he doesn't tell you the story. Um, but then he said, you know, it's, I'm paraphrasing, but it's it's uh, he, his sense of it is that it's not going anywhere because there's it's hard to have a scandal that nobody writes about. So he's just. He's he's recognizing how little traction just about all of this campaign's narratives have generated in the press. And, you know, part of that's probably a concerted effort, even a con- unconscious effort on the part of um, members of the media whose allegiances aren't particularly veiled. Um, but also sort of a maladroitness on the part of this campaign that has been unable to craft a narrative that has uh, managed to rise above the general din of the campaign. Right. Right. Uh, and that's uh, that's not just the president's fault. I mean, he steps on his message constantly, but he's surrounded yeah. by people who are supposed to craft messages for him that are resonant, and they've not done a very good job of it. Christine? 
Well, it's been it's interesting that, that Dan raised this issue of false hope in campaigns because I've been struck in this campaign in particular how uh, wildly Trump has swung from expressing hope to what what Noah just described in, in this recent interview. And I think that's part of why that there is no sort of uh, through line to his narrative, because it's almost like watching someone have violent mood swings, right? I mean, you do need your principle, I assume. And I'd, I'd love to hear uh, Dan's thoughts on this based on other uh, candidates he's watched closely. Um, you, How much hope, even in the face of a, a dire loss, do you want the candidate to demonstrate? Because at some point they look foolish if they're too hopeful. On the other hand, what Trump is doing is is definitely a downer. Like this is not really what you want to see your candidate doing on election day, I assume. Well, this is a campaign, you know, for all the obvious reasons, different than every other. Uh, but I think it's missing something that I thought always defined campaigns, which is a kind of gleefulness, um, which fed the hope um, campaigns are always made up of like four components. There's the money people, and they kind of disappear after the convention. They're less relevant. Um, there's the advanced people. They run all the events, blue pipe and drape, and they're just a fixture in every campaign. And then there are people who talk to reporters, an enormous part of campaigns, uh, underestimated by the public. They're just people who do nothing but talk to reporters. And then there are the speechwriters, and the speechwriters pepper a campaign with certain big moments which create hope and that feeds into the reporters who talk about oh did you hear that speech this campaign and i would say this is true seems to me to be true of the biden campaign was there a memorable speech in this campaign and speeches that creates momentum and neither campaign is both campaigns have no momentum well it's funny you know because there is of course Biden spent all this time working on the Gettysburg speech. It's really it was really important to him. He was, it was a moment to express his view on on race, and it, you know he worked, crafted it painstakingly. And uh, I, I mean, I don't even think there was there was like a news story about the speech, and I don't remember what he said. I mean, of course, what's memorable about Biden in this campaign the entire year is what he hasn't said, and the 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 landmines he hasn't stepped on and the political controversies he has refused to engage. Uh, that is the kind of genius, if in fact he wins tonight, of this campaign is that he, he the whole thing was avoiding the ideological landmines that could have caused him to end up saying of things affirmatively uh, that would make Trump's case that he uh, was representing too extreme a party to win the election. Abe, you. I'm just I'm thinking about the question of speeches, um, actually, and I'm because I'm, I'm now I'm trying to think back on um, memorable speeches from even 2016. Um, and I, I'm just sort of wondering in this larger sense if because um, I, I noticed something we, we've mentioned on several times, several occasions that sort of there's been no. Um, memorable speeches, and I, I know um, even when we like sort of tend to praise them in the moment, then we try to go back and look on them and 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 see that there's nothing um, that has stuck with us. If if uh, one of the many things that's changed about our politics in this century is that we may be kind of phasing out this sort of mon the monumental memorable speech altogether, um, just by virtue of um, the attention span involves um, having to stick with it. Well, I mean, I think 
this is very specific to Trump himself, obviously, because his medium isn't the speech. It's the tweet. That's that's the thing that he has brought and changed American politics with. And so the, the tweet, a good tweet, and he actually is not that good a tweeter, is a soundbite. A soundbite is what emerges from a speech. It's a it's a short, sharp phrase or expression of an idea that lives beyond whatever the initial context was in which it was delivered. Can think of a couple of phrases in the Trump presidency. One at the very beginning, which was American carnage, right from the from the inaugural address. Uh, then you can think of the weird things that happened on Twitter that were errors or failures on his part. Kofefe, right. the, the you know the word we still don't have any idea at midnight what it was that he was referring no, to. You know or, what? Can we just dwell on that for a second because yeah. it's indicative. If he loses, that's indicative of why the president wrote a tweet. That was clearly a typo. And then he proceeded to make a joke about it. He was like, you know, only only I know what Kofifi means. He was making fun of himself, which was, a, you know, he, he sometimes has a, a, the capacity to laugh at himself, which it's not always on display. But when he does, it's humanizing and, in, you know, uh, 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 it makes you have some affection for the president in ways right. that his you know, a prickly personality doesn't. Right. But the people around him started talking about Kofifi like he was Stalin. Like he really meant it, and it was it was definitely something that he intended to say. And if you if right. you corrected him, you'd be afraid that he might come after you for your correction of, right. of his clearly deliberate misdirection of the of the of yeah. the public. It was an indication of where this thing was going to go that I think we're about to see come to fruition. Right. Well, I mean, in terms of speeches, because I was a presidential speechwriter. Uh, Dan coordinated speeches like uh, in 92 for the Dole campaign in 96, so we should get to at conventions, did some of this uh, in 2000 for George W. Bush and and at the 2012 convention for Romney. And what's interesting about all of this stuff is that the world in which speeches are important is a world in which you are playing uh, a long game, like you're playing a 162 game season. And uh, everything is supposed to harmonize with everything else. You're not supposed to be shifting gears and 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 changing your approach and doing this. Things are supposed to fit into a longer pattern. And then you have like a nugget, like it's, it's like a stew. And then there's like a delicious nugget in the middle of the stew, which is the soundbite or the thing that is memorable. But it's all consistent over over time. And that inconsistency is the definition of the Trump presidency. It is an in his his approach is deliberately. If you want to say there's anything conscious, it conscious it is. He's constantly changing focus. He's constantly shifting attention. He is constantly trying to put everybody on the back foot, and that is violative of this long-term, long-time communication strategy that governed efforts at running national campaigns and 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 governing a presidency, which was to establish a kind of build, if you will, build a rhetorical wall and then add decoration to it as time went on and that there would be your big, beautiful wall, maybe even with a door in it, like Trump talked about with the with the wall on the border. But it's a painstaking act. And when you go through it, everything that you write or everything you do has to be uh, has to follow in a very long sequence of events and not contradict, not change the terms, nothing like that, but advance it nonetheless, right? 
So, well, John, you have to remember, I think um, speeches at heart are about I believe it's somebody believing deeply in something. Um, and, you know, when I look back at 2016, Democratic Convention actually had some memorable speeches. Michelle Obama's speech, Bill Clinton's speech about his wife. Look, he's a gifted speech giver. Uh, but that was a stemwinder and mm -hmm. personal and based in, I believe, and this goes back to, you know, Lincoln to Kennedy, Martin Luther King, all these speeches are about something you believe in and you're getting other people to follow you. If you don't believe in anything, <laughs> there's no point yeah. in giving a speech, even yeah. if belief is somewhat synthetic for the purpose of campaigns. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's what, you know, I think that's what creates excitement at a convention, at a small event, at an airport. And I think that kind of thrill of going up and seeing a candidate tell, here's what I believe, is what's kind of missing. No, and it's that's a very good point because that's also what's missing on the Biden side too, right? Because what we hear from Biden is, I'm going to risk, this is about the soul of America, but we don't know what he believes the soul is, what it should look like. Are we restoring it? Are we moving forward? And there is a lot of incoherence on his side of the aisle too, which is fine because their message of we're not that guy is working. Um, but I, I've actually been very frustrated. I think Noah pointed out the other day that, you know, Kamala Harris hasn't given a single press conference. We don't really know what this campaign believes in. We do know what it stands against, and that might be enough for this election. But going forward, I think it's why there's a lot of concern among conservatives who don't like Trump, but who are worried about what the future is going to bring under a Biden administration. You know, framing it the way you framed it, Dan, it's interesting because you just put me in mind of something. So if speeches are about, I believe, if you watch one of these electrifying Trump rallies, and they are, they are even now electrifying, it is the opposite of, I believe. Basically, it's Trump standing there saying to 80,000 people, this is all bullshit. That is the fundamental Trump message. It's like, I'm going to throw him in jail. Remember Hillary? We should have thrown her in jail. Maybe I'll say the election is invalid. The lawyers are going to decide everything. It's sort of like, you know what? Let's all cut the crap. This is all bullshit. Politics is bullshit. What I'm telling you is bullshit. What Biden is saying is bullshit. It's all bullshit. And of course, that kind of thing is electrifying in a country that is struggling to find any kind of common meaning or purpose. It's like, you know, we don't even have one. Let's let's drop the nonsense and it's electrifying but it is like it is like the you know daffy duck blowing himself up with the dynamite like maybe you could only do it once you know i'll give you a campaign story um about speeches because i think speeches also require somebody to read an audience and with trump it's not really about reading the audience the audience is always the same and it's about him um so I was traveling with Lamar Alexander. This is during the Republican primaries in 1996. And we were doing a fly around Florida. So you get a small plane, small staff, and you do 10 stops in a day. And you get audiences of 30 to 200 people. And it's early on. You're just doing anything you can. And um, end of the day, 7 p.m., 11 earlier stops. And our last stop's Ocala, Florida. So uh, it's known for as a horse racing center, but it's also at that time was more of the emerging right wing anti NAFTA, anti immigrant part of the Republican Party. So we're in some you know, Marriott Hotel 
and I go and look at the audience and it's all these people wearing Buchanan buttons. Pat Buchanan was running anti-NAFTA. This is not Lamar Alexander's crowd. And I go back stage and I say to Lamar, you know, these these guys are, you know, anti-immigration Buchananites. I do not think this is our crowd. We should get in and out quickly. And Lamar typically sort of ignored it and just went out, looks around the audience. And instead of doing the stump speech that he's done 11 times earlier that day, he says, um, you know, uh, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't start this occasion with a mini Pearl story. Mini Pearl, of course, a character from the Grand Old Opry who lived beside him. Lamar looks at the audience and realizes these are hee-haw watchers. <laughs> and within five minutes, they are eating out of his hand. And it's just the ability to read the audience and not rely on yourself that makes politics great. Well, you know, so um, in 1996, you spent the last uh, 96 hours of the Dole campaign, which if what we're hearing today, you know, is in, is is indicative or, what, you know, if, what the, if the conventional wisdom of today uh, is anything is reflected tonight um the dole campaign and the george hw bush campaign are pretty close parallels to what might be happening uh to the trump campaign uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like being on the plane because dole who was down in the last in the polls in the week before the election 15 16 points basically decided as i recall that he was going to do this mad sprint in the last um uh, three, four days, just like not sleep, go everywhere, do whatever he could to kind of give a little burst of excitement in a way so that he wasn't humiliated. Um, 96 hours, right. 96 hours yeah, of yeah. nonstop campaigning. You know, there is a, there's a myth uh, perpetrated by both uh, the media and movies about campaigns that inside every campaign is a tightly wound, super evil genius uh, James Carville, uh, Lee Atwood, um, who, Lee Atwater, who understand everything and every move is planned. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. And I think it was embodied in the last 96 hours of the Dole campaign, where we decided, you know, to try and throw some joy in an otherwise losing campaign to travel around the country. And, um, and so, I mean, just to give you a sense, there's an advanced team and they tell you, look, we're going to be going up and down. Nobody can bring a big suitcase. It has to, small bag, has to fit an overhead. And um, we have no idea where we're going. And literally, they were sitting on the plane with Dole with a map. And by a map, I don't mean a Google map. I mean like one of these fold out four by three foot things of the United States going, where should we fly to next? So Almagorda, New Mexico, Las Vegas at midnight, someplace in Minnesota, Knoxville, Tennessee, and just all around. And um, there's a speech at every one, by the way, a written speech on a teleprompter at every one. And I'm with Mike Gerson and John McConnell, Mike Gerson now a famous uh, columnist, but then a fam- you know a, an emerging speechwriter, John McConnell, a veteran speechwriter. And we are churning out speeches at every single stop that Dole, that would be on the teleprompter, and Dole would not necessarily give. He would sometimes give the speech from the previous stop just to screw things up to show that he was still in control. Um, and um, 
as I, I, you know, I thought there was a ton of fun and joy in what you knew was a losing campaign, but you knew there were still people rooting for you, and that's why you did it. Right. Um, you know, Dole did something that Trump does, uh, where he provides a kind of running, where Dole kind of provided a running commentary on the speech that he himself was giving. Uh, you know, which is odd because, of course, Dole is not a postmodern candidate in any sense of the word, but he would sort of like he'd be less like, you know, and we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to make sure that the tax rate uh, remains progressive. And then he'd go like, you know, a lot of five dollar words in this speech Yeah, or like, says, while he was delivering it, like, yeah. you know, we, Trump we, does that, quote, you know, quote from, you know, as General Eisenhower said during World War Two and Dole would go as General Eisenhower said. And I knew Dwight. I knew I knew Ike. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh yeah, yeah. Let me get in. Let me get in here. Let me get a word in edgewise in my own speech, right? And you know, Trump does that thing where he like offers a commentary on the sentence that he is reading as he is as he is improvising. Um, I, I want to talk a little more about that dull uh, thing because uh, that that dull uh, ninety six hours because it's uh, pretty amazing. But first. Uh, let me talk to you about the uh, uh, sponsor that you've been hearing about uh, for a while with us. Very different kind of sponsor, the Jordan Harbinger Show. Apple named this podcast one of its best of 2018, and it's aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. And there's an episode for everyone, no matter what interests you. Professional art forger who somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. You want to know how? Listen to the Jordan Harbinger show. Episodes about birth control and how the and how the medication itself can change the way you look at your partners and uh, change elements of your personality. You won't find one set of viewpoints on this show. The Jordan Harbinger show covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. You'll find something you can apply to your own life. Whether that's an actionable routine change to boost your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. So go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So uh, Dole, of course, a famously uh, acerbic and grumpy person. Uh, uh uh, showed real stamina, grit, and perseverance during that 96-hour jaunt, um, and yet he was very much himself, right? So on that, uh, in those last 96 hours. Well, part of what he, what what Dole liked to do was be in control. So he actually controlled the manifest for the campaign uh, play. So this is kind of absurd. There's a ton of staff that normally do that. He would actually go over not only who was on the plane. But where they would be sitting. So you would be assigned a seat based on whatever mood he happened to be in. And the way these planes were constructed was at the very front of the plane, there were um, two rear facing seats um, looking at two forward facing seats at the very beginning. So two groups of four, kind of like you'd see in a bus or a cafeteria. And he would sit on the aisle front row looking back at everyone just to see what was going on and uh, you know he had this habit that if i ever closed my laptop i.e i wasn't working he'd call me up and give me some assignment yeah you know, 
sitting on the plane doing something other than work really bothered him. Um, and he'd have some harebrained idea. And again, I, you know, I just emphasize like the seat of the pants style of the entire campaign was what made it both maddening because he knew you were going to lose, uh, but also kind of fun. Well, you know, in 88, the famous campaign turnaround of George H.W. Bush in September of 88, when he was supposed to, when the, a poll had had him down 17 points to John Kerry, which I'm sure was just an insane outlier, uh, was the ultimate seat in the pants thing where basically Roger Ailes, who was running the campaign, uh, they started having him go to flag factories. Do you remember this? He went to flag oh. factories because because um, Dukakis had vetoed the saying of the Pledge of Allegiance in schools or some some crazy thing like that. And so he'd go to a flag factory and they got all this local coverage. So basically they spent three weeks in almost exact like, find me a flag factory. Find, you know, find, find me somewhere where I could give the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, and like Bush spent 21 days flying across the country, you know, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, you know, and that that was that kind of improvisatory thing that, uh, you know, I think we sort of see from have seen from Trump in the last week. This like, I'll do t- 12 uh, rallies a day. You know, he was out last night in Grand Rapids, Michigan at like one o'clock in the morning speaking to some crowd at one o'clock in the morning. I mean, 150 million people are going to vote in this election all told. Right. So, yeah, it comes down to it could come down to 10 or 15,000 people in in Michigan if it's anything like uh, 2016. But, you know, the, the scale of these numbers suggests that this is kind of a fool's errand. You know, it's like, well, why are you even bothering? You know, you're really talking about a gigantic national referendum on how you did and like whether or not. There are 10,000, whether or not there are 20,000 people standing in the freezing cold the night before the election listening to you really shouldn't matter all that much. And yet, you know, in that way, he's kind of a conventional politician, not an unconventional politician. Of course, Romney had 80,000 people at rallies in the last weekend in Pennsylvania and Ohio and, and lost by four points. So when people say to you, oh, the crowd size, look at the crowd size, like... Unfortunately, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, Dan, we should we should talk about the uh, the 2012 uh, convention because uh, th- this is a so you were essentially coordinating the speeches at the 2012 Republican convention, which people may or may not remember lost its first day because of a hurricane, right? So uh, it was going to be four days, Monday through Thursday. Romney had to cancel the Monday because it would have looked unseemly to be having big rally stuff and all that. Uh, and maybe people couldn't get there because of the hurricane. So it was, it was shortened to three days, but, um, and of course it, it, it talk about seat of the pants. So that an incredibly disciplined convention was upended at the last moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's a funny thing about Republican conventions and I don't know if this is true on the democratic side, but, there is a kind of superstructure of permanent staff who are convention bugs. They're lobbyists or something else during the year. They work on other campaigns, but mostly they work on conventions every four years, regardless of who the candidate is. And in a sense, they're um, they're non uh, I wouldn't say nonpartisan, but they're not loyal to any particular candidate. And they show up and they either run the platform committee and the same people have been running the platform committee 
for almost 30 years in Republican politics. Uh, it's not the politicians who are in charge. And it is also true that the same group of people more or less have been running speech writing at conventions when there used to be big speeches at conventions for 20 years. And I got a call in midsummer of 2012 from a guy who had led this speech writing team. I think he was on his fourth Republican convention. And he said, one of our regulars is having orthopedic surgery. So we have an open slot. Otherwise, I would not be inviting you. But just for this year, it, you may never be invited again, but you could <laughs> fill this slot. And would you come down? And it's a team of about eight of us. And they come from all walks of political life. And you show up in Tampa and you have to be there for two and a half weeks. And everything that is said on the stage goes through your computers. So assignments are made, the speaking schedule, who's going to say what, and you got to find the speakers sometime. And um, yeah, and it's, you know, uh, a lot of it is just running around with your hair on fire, trying to find somebody, making sure the same joke isn't said over and over again, although you're never completely successful on that. And most of all, timing everything, because after eight o'clock, it's all on TV. So if you want something to be prime time, nine to 10 Eastern, you got to make sure that nobody is running long. So everything's rehearsed, everything's timed, everything is centralized, and um, it's actually a ton of fun. Right. So, so you're all timed, you're all this, you're all that, and there are two interesting moments, or three, I would say, based on the stories that you told in our experience. One was that the big speech that wasn't uh, Romney's speech or Ryan's speech was given by the then superstar of the Republican Party, Chris Christie, yeah. right? Who had yet to be as entirely uncontroversial as the star of the Republican Party because he had yet to hug Barack Obama, you know, during Hurricane Sandy, and he had yet to, you know, slow down traffic on the bridge and do all that. So he was just like a runaway star because he had won in this Democratic state and he had high approval ratings and all of this. And people had been, you know, uh, suggesting that he run in 2012, and he said he really couldn't because of this campaign finance pay or play law, all stuff that you forget. But so Christie was a star, and this was a get, and he was the keynote speaker, and he would not, I believe, assent to living within this pattern, right? He 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 was giving his own speech, and you could all go to hell, and he was going to speak what he was going to say, right? And well, it's funny. Um, so every speech is either written by the staff and even those who are elected officials who own their own staff have to run it through the speech writing team. And everything's rehearsed. Everything is rehearsed in the basement of the you know Tampa Bay Convention Center or whatever it was, a modified hockey arena or something. And you rehearse it. I remember Christie refused to do that. Christie needed the ballroom of the Marriott to do his run through. And so like all the hangers on her and the speech writing team and Stuart Stevens, who remember was the campaign manager is there. It wouldn't be there for anything else, but for Christie, this was a big deal. And 30 minutes late in walks Christie. He's enormous, has a massive retinue with him, staffers, everything, looks around and says, clear the room. You know, as if this is like some sacred scene that's about all the staff have to leave. And he then proceeds, I was one of the few who stayed, and he then proceeds to deliver this unbelievably boring 
self-important speech that nobody will ever remember. Uh, but the pomposity of it was absolutely breathtaking. And so it was wait, it was more yeah. the 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 speech that he gave in that practice session was more self-aggrandizing than the one he delivered during the convention. It was right on par. <laughs> no, but here's the thing. So a he gave this speech that was about his experience. And then I believe he mentions Romney's name 19 minutes into the speech, keynoting at the convention that is there to nominate Mitt Romney as president of the United States, which was, I think, an indication of how that convention was going to end up going. So that was number one. Number two was Romney's speech itself, which legend has it. I, it's not legend. I mean, it's true, but legend has it that uh, the the uh, Pete Wayner uh, Matt, or Matt Scully and uh, the aforementioned John McConnell had written a great speech for Romney, and that Stuart Stevens, the campaign manager, who was now one of the lions of the Lincoln Project, threw it out and wrote his own because Stuart writes novels and he fancies himself a writer. Uh, and has written a campaign memoir and a book about fly fishing or something. And so he wrote his own, which, of course, will go down in the annals of Romney gave a speech. <laughs> Did Romney ever give a speech at his convention? I don't remember. Is that is that right? Do I have the... Yeah, you know, it, by the way, there's a bit of a history of making sure that the candidate's speech is really something s special. Um, what you describe is exactly right. There were dueling scripts of what Romney would say. And Stuart Stevens, uh, who's not an ungifted writer, um, but he had his own idea of what Romney wanted to say, and it was a complete bomb. Um, you'll recall in 96, by the way, Mark Halperin, the novelist, who's one of the great American writers, wrote Dole's speech at the convention. Uh, by the way, it is a beautifully written speech, but few people will ever remember it. There right. is something about a political yeah. speech that requires politics, cheer right. lines. And neither Stuart Stevens' speech nor Mark Halperin's for Dole right, really right. had that. Right. And then, of course, was the ultimate moment at the convention, which was before Romney gave his speech, which was the person who introduced Romney and upended the entire incredibly designed, make sure there are no surprises system uh, that had been painstakingly, you know, inaugurated and gone through, you know, in part by you, right? Which was? Uh, Clint Eastwood. Are you know one of our few Republican celebrities, and uh, you know this is a, this is um, part of the, an ongoing Republican um, celebrity de deficit. Um, there's so few celebrities that are not B-list that show up at Republican events that Republicans get giddy in the sight of anyone who might be an A-lister. Clint Eastwood probably an A-lister, but as I said, everybody rehearsed and everyone timed themselves. I timed and rehearsed Jeb Bush, who was governor of Florida at the time, in a small room to make sure that his eight minutes or whatever it was, was no more than seven minutes and 58 seconds. Everybody went through it. And the day of the final day of the convention, we heard that there was a secret surprise. So it's like every kind of rumor, a defector from the Democratic Party, who would it be? And nobody bothered to time it look at the script or know what Clint Eastwood was going to say. And he gave you know, the empty chair speech that went on way too long and pushed Romney out of prime time. Stuart Stevens was starstruck. 
and the ability to have somebody as famous, a celebrity like Eastwood, everything else was thrown out. Um, now, according to, uh, I think, uh, Double Down, which was the Mark Helperin, uh John Heileman book, Stewart threw up uh, on, you know, backstage uh, as he was watching Eastwood, because if you remember, it was this like insane high wire act where three or four minutes into it, you thought you were seeing the heaven's gate of political moments, you know, the most horrible political moment that there ever was. I thought in the end, he kind of turned it around and it was like, it ended up being a sort of memorable, weird thing. But you really, there was a moment of sort of like, Emphasis on the, weird, though, really. Yeah, but it was like it was like you know the moment in the producers where in the movie the producers where they cut to the audience, and they're like the monkey, the see nothing, say nothing, hear nothing monkeys. You know, the audience is like someone's got his hand over his mouth, someone's got his hand over his eyes, and someone else has their hands over their ears as, as 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 the hippie the hippie Hitler is you know, doing his dance or, or as springtime for Hitler is going on. Um, that was sort of like the feeling when you were watching Romney. I think we were texting or something, Daniel. You're like, I was like, is everything okay? Or something like that. It was just, it was, um, it was, it was amazing that you could have this, like Romney, a person, a very studied person who has ever done anything unspontaneous in his entire life. Like, the last moment of the most important moment of the most important political event of his life just gets thrown into the, you know, just gets turns into a total improvisation over which no one has any control with a hundred billion people watching. Can I, can I ask a a question that uh, has pressing relevance? Uh, What happens when, well, two questions, actually, when does the candidate himself realize he's going to lose and how do they deal with loss? Because tonight we're going to we already have have, you know, the press releases basically from both campaigns are like neither one is going to they're both going to act like they've won, <laughs> regardless of how long this the count might go on. So I'm curious, Dan, when what, at, how does the staff in particular help the candidate accept reality in those moments or do they just not? <laughs> no one knows. And in most candidates, no one actually knows what the candidate is really thinking. Not the chief of staff, not the campaign manager, not his closest friend. All campaigns are about lots of busying factions circling around the candidate. So maybe the candidate's spouse knows, but nobody knows where reality stands because everybody's got their own reality based on a poll, their interpretation, their feeling for the country, their pulse on the nation. And, um, what the candidate actually knows and thinks, unknowable. The Romney people thought they were going to win the election into Election Day. Uh, the final polls taken by Neil Newhouse, their, I believe it was Neil Newhouse, their eternal pollster. I think it was. Maybe it was Tony Fabrizio. I think it was Neil Newhouse. Had him up in the states he needed to be up in to prevail in the Electoral College. Um this is one of the reasons that I think people with a, enough of a memory in the Trump campaign still think that he can pull it out today because people do have some kind of vestigial memory of this. I mean, I know somebody who was with um, uh, Paul Ryan in the sort of in mid-afternoon on election day, 
And Ryan was actually openly, you know, sort of trying to think through when he might resign from the House. Could he take votes after after uh, they won? You know, should he be there in December? Or should he quit and just work on the transition stuff like that? Like it wasn't delusional for him to be thinking this, even though I think by one or two p.m. on election day in in 2012. The portents uh, and various weird collections of big data had already made it clear that things were going against Romney, but but Ryan may not have heard that yet. So uh, this is a different set of circumstances here, right? Because that was a race where it was basically tied nationally uh, on election day, and then uh, Obama won by four or three point eight or something like that. Um, Trump and Hillary. Hillary was up two uh, nationally uh, or three in the polls and one by two nationally. Um, I mean, remember Trump is down eight and a half points in the national polls and he is down in every swing state. Look, it doesn't mean he can't win. It doesn't mean that he can't run the table, but uh, you know, if he, uh, Noah, you said that you, it's okay. You didn't hear it, so we don't know. But I mean, the the portents this morning are that Trump is is under no illusions that he might lose. Something else that he said in that interview was that he wouldn't declare <clears throat> victory prematurely. That there's no point in he's used use the term playing games. There's no point in playing games, um, which you know I'll believe it when I see it because it would it could be an advantageous tactic in the moment depending on how the how the die are cast, but. Yeah, I mean, just the sort of the loss of a, of a sense of fight in him seemed rather palpable from the poll quotes that I was seeing journalists retrieve from this interview, um, which, you know, given the state of the race as we understand it, makes a fair amount of sense. Uh, you know, maybe it's maybe it's discouraging to his supporters, but there's one thing you can say about this president is he's he's never really been political insofar as he's been willing, willing to... Um, deceive towards a, a greater end than the next five minutes. You know, if it's a very long strategic game that requires a certain amount of deception on his part, he's very bad at it because he definitely reads the stage directions. And one of the things that he's done throughout the course of this campaign is tell you what his internal polls are saying when he's on the stump, where he's talking about, hey, you know, he's doing the, delivering this address to seniors and saying, seniors, I'm going to give you this two, this $200 gift card for pharmaceuticals because I'm a senior and I love my seniors and suburban women. Why don't you love me? Don't you love me, suburban women? And it just happens to dovetail with all the public polling that we've seen that shows him down among these demos. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if he's if he's up this morning, he's feeling a little deflated. It's not for lack of evidence to support that that emotional state. Can I go back to Clint Eastwood? You know, you can. You should go back to Clint Eastwood, but I just realized that I have another thing I have to read to you guys. So let me do that because it's Gabby Insurance, our second sponsor today. Because when you've had the same car insurance or homeowner's insurance for years, you kind of get trapped into paying your premiums and not thinking about it. That makes it really easy to overpay and not realize it. So please stop overpaying for car and homeowner's insurance. Please see about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have. Thanks to Gabby. That's G-A-B-I. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account, and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. 
Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. If they can't find you savings like they did for so many others, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing you have the best right out there. And they'll never sell your info, so no annoying spam or robocalls. It's totally free to check your rate, and there's no obligation. Take a few minutes right now and stop overpaying on your car and home insurance. Go to Gabby.com slash commentary. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash commentary. Gabby.com slash commentary. So, Daniel, you were going to talk about Eastwood again. Only in this sense. I think when there is a reset of the Republican Party, whenever that happens, one of the pillars of that reset has to be a better class of celebrity for the Republican Party. <laughs> um, you know, I, here, I, here. I, <laughs> I, I remember being on the Dole campaign, uh, riding on a bus tour through uh, the Central Valley of California. And I'm sitting in a group which is made up of John McCain, Paul Manafort, Chichi Rodriguez, the celebrity golfer, Bo Derek, uh, long past her 10 prime, and um, Ed Crane of the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> that was kind of our Star Wars bar. That's the start <laughs> of a very body <laughs> joke, actually. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. That is... Um, but you, know, I, I got to say though, I mean the 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 celebrity, the main celebrity in the in the Republican Party is Trump. I mean that the, that's that's the celebrity has in that sense sort of overtaken the party entirely. I you mean, know, you, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I just also want to add, I think there there could be um, um, a switch in the um, type of celebrity that that. Republicans will attract, and I don't know if this will come before or after the reset, um, but it's going to come from an unlikely place, which is, I think, the hip-hop world. Well, there's, there is a lot of that, and it's very interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's one of the last cultures, artistic cultures, that really does reward iconoclasm. I um, guess, yeah. But I want to right. talk a little about well, celebrity. I, I, can yeah. I just interject something here? Because I would like to ask Dan about his reset concept. You say, you know, when the Republican Party resets... What circumstances do you envision that would give way to that? Because it seems very unlikely that there'll be anything approaching a 2012-2013 style autopsy. Um, there are far too many important fingerprints in the last four years for anybody to be interested in a forensic analysis of how we got to this place. Um, and it's always easier for the party to fight the last war. The la that's the path of least resistance. So. It, anticipating a Trump loss, perhaps even one that is so seismic that it would focus the minds of Republicans. Um, do you see there being anything approaching a sort of critical self-examination of how we got to this place? Uh, I think the Republican Party, unlike the Democratic Party, really is a function of its leader. So the party went from the party of Nixon and Gerald Ford to the party of Reagan in under eight years. And then it went to the became the party of George H.W. Bush, um, unlike the Democratic Party, which is institutional and voting blocks and unions and teachers and uh, Jews and uh, uh, blocks that are reliable. Um, the Republican Party is a source of floating, shifting affinities defined by a great and interesting leader. So when Steve Forbes for a, a week is the leading in a poll, we become the party of flat tax. <laughs> I, think be, uh, I think it'll be determined by um, who is the leader. And that is, you know, to go back to our central theme, is what usually makes campaigns 
interesting and great. So I just wanted to talk, this is a very interesting question. I think, Dan, you therefore speak against this notion, as I think the autopsy after 2012 demonstrated, that um, you can do responsible, sober, policy-driven work as a party, and then the whole house of cards is knocked over in five seconds by somebody who says, eh, I'm not interested in that. Um, you know, so, so uh, you know, it's an interesting question about whether they should even bother, given the, given the previous, like, why put yourself on record about anything except being anti-Biden, uh, because you're not going to get any credit for having been so sober and realistic and offering serious policy proposals that could really unite various constituencies behind a... You know, and that wasn't, uh, you know, Reagan was the most substantive policy president uh, in some ways of our of our lifetime. But that was very much a personality driven campaign, obviously, that he was a much, you know, in 1980. I mean, it was very substantive. It was a fascinating campaign. But um, you liked Reagan more than you liked Carter. And Reagan was the guy who said, there you go again in the debate. And, you know, that was basically what she wrote. So I think that that speaks to it. I just wanted to conclude maybe on this celebrity note, which is, Dan, you mentioned that, like, you know, the, the Bush is sitting there like he doesn't have any celebrities. Clinton, who was, of course, thought of as this kind of robotic, tiresome, boring guy, is is kind of transformed over this over the course of the first six months of 1992 into Elvis. Remember, and he's like, you know, comes from a town called Hobie, looks like Elvis a little bit. He's it's like, like Al, the Arsenio yeah, Hall yeah, show. Yeah, Al Gore says, uh, you know, like, I'm running with Elvis. There's all this, like, he's a rock star. He's a rock star. He's a rock star. And so all these, you know, celebrities flock to his side. The first White House Correspondents' Dinner in 1993 becomes like a version of the Oscar ceremony, whereas before, if you went to it, it was like, you know, you were excited to have the Assistant Secretary of Labor at your table. Uh, and, and now, you know, you really needed to have, you know, somebody who was, you know, on a sitcom in order to have a table that was of any moment. And yet... The minute that Clinton gets into office as this, you know, and he only got 43% of the vote, remember, but he gets into office and there is the greatest event in American history, which is that he comes to the White House in the form of a meeting at the White House with James Carville and Stephanopoulos and a couple of people and Gary David Goldberg, who had produced Family Ties and this one and that one and the other one, and they're all sitting around a table and they sit sit there and they say, great, now we've won. Now here's what we need to do. National health insurance. And you have to, of course, make you know universal child care and raise taxes and do this and do that. And Carvel is sitting there for 10 minutes and he basically says, get the hell out of this room. Who the hell do you people think you are? You think I come into your office and I tell you how to make a hit television show? I don't know that what, what to do about how to make a hit television show. And you don't know F all about how to run politics. So, you know, scram, you, you loudmouth losers. Thanks very much for your help last time. And we'll call you again when we need you. And, uh, you know, what was the end result of that? The end result of that was like the West Wing Right, where you basically throw Clinton and the you, you have the Clinton White House without Clinton, right? Is the West Wing. It's like the liberal fantasy is we could do so great as long as we had somebody else as president who enacted our agenda. 
you know, and the American president, the movie that, you know, Sorkin wrote before the West Wing, which again is what if we had that meeting at the White House and they listened to us instead of throwing us out? And, I, you know, it's an interesting question. Biden's in exactly the same position. He is not a flashy, interesting celebrity candidate. He's become the candidate that they all, you know, have celebrated and they're going to want their, you know, taste and maybe he'll give it to them and then it'll really be a disaster. But it was Clinton. It was basically, if you think about it, that moment. And remember, Clinton then had to go through 94 and losing the House and and, and all of that. But uh, it was that moment that defined that Clinton was going to still be able to shift back to the center, that he didn't become a candidate of the cultural left, that he remained a president that was at least hewing to the center in some sense or other. And that even when he went too far to the center, went went too far to the left from the center, he had to scurry back. But had he like embraced the Hollywood agenda in 1993, he certainly would have been a one-term president. The Republican Party will always have Lee Greenwood. <laughs> you know, Abe and I, just to complete here, I think I even may have said this, but uh, uh, Abe and I, in the last week, uh, we've both been watching from t- two years ago, I think, this Ken Burns documentary on country music. Um, I've now seen, it's a, it, 16 hours, eight episodes. I've now seen four of them. I don't know how many Abe you've seen. Uh, but speak, um, It is a, one of the greatest documentaries ever made and one of the greatest portraits of American culture ever made and pop culture and in some ways America. Uh, I am not that big a Ken Burns fan, but um, uh, you can watch it if you go to Amazon and you 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 take a week's free trial of the PBS uh, uh, documentary uh, app. You can do it if you do it for a week. You can do it and then cancel it and watch it for free. <laughs> and if the Minnie Pearl reference eluded you, yes, you'll, you'll find yeah, out you'll all learn about her, all yeah. about yeah. Minnie Pearl, who was a who was a who was a, a high society uh, Georgia girl who ends up becoming this you know, example of a of a down-home country woman. I'm so surprised that you're late to this, John. I watched it as it came out, and I've watched it in its entirety twice. It's a magnificent picture of the country, and it is um, the coincidences within the tiny... You think politics is a tiny world? Country music is an even smaller world. And at some future podcast, I hope I will tell you about the time I sat beside Marty Stewart was one of the main narrators on a flight from Nashville to uh, Los Angeles and talked with him the entire time. It was a fantastic experience. Anyway, so there's something to do today while you're waiting for results if you want them. So Daniel Cass, thank you so much for joining us and and telling us your stories. Uh, Tonight, we will be live blogging on the website, uh, on the Commentary Magazine website. So go there with our observations as they... As they come, Abe Greenwald, Noah Rothman, Christine Rosen, and and I will be there to tell you what we think is going on. Uh, And uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow uh, with whatever we have to talk about tomorrow. So keep the candle burning.